Okay, the mic's on, we're good? Okay, good. <clears throat> so, hi everyone. Um, this is a big honor. Um, I didn't know about this series until just now, and um, thank you, Josh, <laughs> for doing this. Um, uh, so, uh, I wanted to start off by asking you to take us through a little bit of your journey with the book, um, why you decided to write this, and you know, as people have said to me, I'm sure they've also been saying to you, like, this is so timely, it's so timely, as though you wrote it, you know, you had the idea yesterday, <laughs> because you knew that there was a huge crisis coming in reproductive rights. Obviously, that's not true. So I wonder what the context really was for you to um, take on this project, and particularly, there's something I've been thinking a lot about, like, there aren't a lot of mainstream you know, books about reproductive rights for regular audiences and regular readers. And um, I wonder why, you know, why in particular you decided that you wanted to write that kind of a book that would speak to, to regular readers um, about something that obviously we're all curious about right now, but I think when you started the project, that just wasn't the case. Yeah, so um, first of all, a special thank you to you for coming really at the very last moment. I was like, I know who to reach out to. Um, we had just been connected, and I really respect your work, and I'm so thankful to you for coming. Um, see, even when I'm on stage, I have to introduce someone. It's, it's <laughs> pathetic. Um, I, I had the idea way back in 2010. Um, I was in France for a year, and I was um, reading an article in The New Yorker written by Margaret Talbot, about gay marriage and sort of the, what would be the best approach to go about sort of legalizing gay marriage. And I, my ears pricked up when Norma McCorvey, who was Jane Roe, was mentioned in passing as an example of a plaintiff who was not good for her cause, the movement she represented, because she'd sort of famously switched sides. She'd gone from the pro-choice side to the pro-life side. And then it mentioned parenthetically, I think literally parenthetically, that she had not been able to have an abortion um, because the case sort of took too long um, for her to avail herself of the right that she enabled everyone to sort of enjoy. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, of course, like the gestation of a lawsuit is longer than the gestation of a baby. And that was, um, that was, that moment sort of changed the next 12 years of my life. Because I said to myself, I bet that he or she who has been born, who was born, and whose conception occasioned Roe v. Wade, I just have a feeling, even though I read that Norma Jane Roe had relinquished that child to adoption, I just bet that they know who they've been born to. And that would be a very difficult thing to carry, to know that your conception led to Roe. And so that realization led me off on this crazy journey to sort of tell it very quickly. I wanted to see if I could find that person. I found out online that the pro-life, and just to tell you, I use the terms pro-life and pro-choice in my book. I feel like we should allow people to sort of call themselves what they wish to be called. So I found that the pro-life felt very strongly about this person, that he or she whoever they were, or the sort of living incarnation of their argument against abortion. Mm -hmm. And they would say, aha, like, but for Roe, you know, had Roe already been decided when this human being was conceived, you would have murdered her. You know, it was nothing was abstract. And I wanted to find her. 
I ended up finding my way to Norma. It turned out that Norma um, didn't wish to talk about it, and she and I respected that. I then reached out to Norma's partner. Norma was gay. She had to renounce her homosexuality. That was part of her, sort of the precondition of her becoming a born-again Christian and a pro-life advocate, which mm -hmm. is really horrible and took an enormous toll on her. But the woman she had lived with for m many years, a woman named Connie Gonzalez, who was really the only person on, uh, in the world, and certainly among the leaders on either side of the issue, the only one who cared more about Norma than Jane Roe. She was a wonderful woman, Connie. Mm -hmm. And when I went to visit Connie, and I found her in a very sort of down-and-out home in Texas, she told me that her home was about to be foreclosed on and everything in the garage was about to be thrown out. And oh, by the way, Norma's private papers were in the garage. And I said, uh, don't throw those out. Those are very important papers. Those papers, by the way, are now at the Schlesinger Library at Harvard, um, available to researchers. I got the papers, I put them in garbage bags and put them in my the trunk of my rental car and went home and at three in the morning I found what I was looking for, the date of birth of the youngest child. It was on one piece of paper. Norma had mentioned it in passing to a Catholic uh, newsletter. I then found that person. She didn't wish to talk about it. And I said, you have my word that I will never write about you against your wish, against your wishes. And by the way, I didn't first reach out to her. I reached out to her mother in case she hadn't known who she was born to. I wouldn't obviously upend her life. The mother said, yes, we know about Norma, but she doesn't wish to talk about it. I said, fine. But then I looked for the other two children Norma had given birth to and also placed for adoption. And I found them, and they did wish to participate. It took me about a year to find them. And I then got back in touch with Shelly, the quote-unquote Roe baby. And she said, now that you've found my siblings, who I've always looked for, I do want to participate. And over the next 10 years, my interest grew from the three children to Norma, to Roe v. Wade, to the whole of abortion in America. And the book just kept, just kept getting bigger and bigger. And in answer to your sort of second question, how was it sort of this approach? You're right. It actually, I don't think there are many books about Roe and abortion that sort of um, really humanize the issue the way I sort of set out to do. And I said to myself, you know, this is such a polarizing subject. I want to talk about Roe and abortion, not through politics at all, but through human beings, and just sort of see where that takes me. And it's been very gratifying because um, people, everyone wants to sort of read a story. And when you read my book, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. You end up kind of pulling for people, even if they're not on the side that you're on, mm -hmm. on this issue. And sort of, you know, um, we could talk a lot about how it, it's become politicized and polarized in this country, but my approach was really, you know, Lawrence Tribe, the last thing to say about it, Lawrence Tribe, the famous congressional, uh, you know, the, the, the scholar, the constitutional scholar, he wrote that the only chance America, he wrote this in 1992 in his book Clash of Absolutes, he said the only chance that America has of ever sort of getting past that Clash of Absolutes is if we humanize, is if we humanize the what he said, uh, give voice to um, both sides of the versus, meaning the, mm -hmm. the Roe versus Wade, and that's really what I tried to do. Yeah, and um, a quick 
advertisement, um, I think you've done this very successfully, and the book is for sale out there. There are a few copies. Um, uh, and along with that, I mean, one of the astounding things about the book is, I mean, since you you take this kind of narrative nonfiction and, and really compassionate approach, um, there is all kinds of nuance, and I couldn't help thinking about it when I was listening to the argument in the Briggs Supreme Court case that's about to be decided, you know, sometime this month or, you know, at the latest in early July, right? And one of the, in this, the Dobbs case, one of the big things that came up in the oral argument was the question of adoption, right? And um, several of the justices, especially Justice um, Amy Coney Barrett, seemed to suggest that adoption was no big deal and that, you know, um, therefore, abortion was not a constitutional necessity, right? That, you know, people could just carry children to term and then uh, under safe haven laws, drop them off at the firehouse and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, and that that would be a perfectly good alternative, right, to having legal, accessible abortion. So I wonder... Um, so, you know, I, I wonder what what light your story um, shines on that dimension. Of, and I and I think it's it's really complex, right? The way the way that um, the way that the issue of adoption ramified in so many different ways for the people who are you know really three dimensional people who are um, whose stories are told in your book. One of the really exciting things for me about um, okay. <laughs> One of the really exciting things for me about writing about Norma was that her life was, she, she sort of lived, she was, if she was an imperfect plaintiff, she was sort of the perfect protagonist for my book, the perfect way to talk about abortion in America as a whole. Mm -hmm. Her life wended through both sides of the issue. Her life intersected with leaders on both sides of the issue. And she came in a, to this, to a remarkable degree, to sort of, embody all of the kind of complications and ambivalences and nuances um, that define abortion in America. So one of the things that was so gripping for me, um, and, I, and I hope for the reader, is, you know, you're right. The pro-life like to say, like Justice Barrett in this unbelievably flip way, um, mm -hmm. hey, no problem, just sort of, you know, relinquish your child to adoption, everything will be fine. Conversely, what they say, is that if a woman has an abortion, she is going to suffer sort of emo emotionally for that. Well, the overwhelming sort of data show, and there are great studies on this, that the exact opposite is true. Right. That the great majority, now it is 100% true that there will be some women who have an abortion who are scarred emotionally by that. But the overwhelming majority of them express relief, not regret. And on the other side, even if a woman feels you know, she feels devout about her decision to sort of give up a child for adoption. This is something she wishes to do. Even she will often be sort of haunted by that decision for the rest of her life. Somewhere there's a child out there. This is often a very difficult thing for women. And so one of the things, and Norma, excuse me, Jane Rowe, she never had an abortion, as I mentioned, and she relinquished three children to adoption, which was very hard for her. So you just sort of follow her life, and my God, you see how she was scalded by this experience. And it was you know, something on both sides. I kind of call out the bullshit on both sides. And there, unfortunately, as a person who is 
very much pro-choice. There are things that, in my opinion, you know, that haven't really, that, you know, the pro-choice movement also sort of hasn't been totally sort of candid about. And it was nice for me, like obviously the reader of my book knows where I stand, and I even mention it in an author's note, but I really did try to be fair to both sides. But the adoption issue was an issue where I went right to sort of the heart through Norma's life of one of the sort of staples of the pro-life argument and said, you know what, this simply is not true. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you about that issue of um, being tough on both sides, because I also yeah. found that and, and, and being engaged, you know, with both sides. Um, you know, I had this, um, in my book that's coming out, I talk a lot about, um, about racism yeah. and uh, in the pro-choice movement and the, the things that are very uncomfortable to talk about, like some of the ways in which some, not all, yeah. pro-choice advocates used uh, so-called population control yeah. language, right? And sort of believe that there was a hierarchy of better and worse you know, people to be born and that yeah. one of the reasons for abortion had to do with that. So, but I, but I suffered a lot about feeling like, am I being unfair? Yeah. Am I, am I kicking the pro-choice movement when it's down? Yeah. You know, that was really, excuse me, that was really the way it, it struck me. And I wonder if you felt that way at all too, especially as we've seen over the over the last year and even before that. This, this movement is really on the ropes. So, how do you feel about that? Yeah, it was, you know, I the big journalism cliche: follow the story. And I, and I really did. I was so uneducated about these issues when I started. So it's different mm -hmm. than you know, a professor who knows exactly what she's doing and talking about, sort of diving into something like this. And in a way, my ignorance was a benefit to me because I had very few sort of preconceived notions. I just sort of dove in and I was like, wait a minute, that's so bizarre that the leaders mm -hmm. of the pro-choice movement didn't treat Norma because she was totally uneducated. Is that, was that the case for others? And then I came to see that unfortunately class is probably the single biggest issue, in my opinion, um, in terms of determining whether a woman is go and a girl is going to have access to abortion, whether she's going to sort of, you know, be helped along to find an abortion provider. And Norma was totally uneducated. Here's another good example of how Norma's life sort of led me to sort of uncover these large truths about abortion in America. Totally uneducated. She, she dropped out of school. I'll tell you just a tiny bit about her, which is such a fascinating woman. The single biggest thing that I felt made Norma the perfect protagonist was that the same things that ripped her family apart and made unwanted pregnancy so complicated in her family are the same things, in my opinion, that make it so fraught in this country. Like abortion is uniquely fraught in America in a way it isn't in most other countries. Not at all, actually. But in this country, I argue that it's really the ultimate, ultimately, it's the sort of seeming incompatibility between sex and religion that make it so difficult in this country. We have these puritanical roots in this country. And sex and religion are just sort of seen, you know, as things that are irreconcilable. And Norma, unbeknownst to Norma's own family, but when I looked into the family, she was the third straight generation in her family, um, a, a woman, third straight generation to have an unwanted pregnancy. And you see where that sent these poor women. You know, um, just to, without going all the way back, Norma's mother, imagine this, Norma's mother, Mary, is living in rural Louisiana. And she's 17 and gets pregnant. And her family started off Catholic, they're now Pentecostal, and this is just like a catastrophe. 
The mother doesn't tell her that she'd also had an unwanted pregnancy with Shemitain and that she had sort of an immediate uh, marriage and shaka marriage and what that did to her life. She's just horrified, the mom, and says to her daughter, you need to leave. You got to get out of town. So they take this poor girl. She's 17, and they send her to the big city of Baton Rouge. She's then made to deliver her child and then give up the child like it's not her own child, give up the child to her parents, who then raise the child as their own. And Mary has to pretend, just across the Atchafalaya River, that that little girl over there is not her daughter, but is her niece. Now, this destroys her, as it would destroy any of us. I'm a parent, and the thought of having to give up my child to my whomever is miserable. And then what happens is Mary, her life is never the same. She becomes an alcoholic. She gets married. She, her marriage just sort of falls apart. I was able to find some of Mary's childhood friends who talked about the sort of before and after in her life. You know, you see the sort of, of what happens when abortion is not sort of readily available for someone. And this is then the home that Norma grows up in, right, where sex is not only sinful, but it's illicit. And then all the more so when Norma... Um, comes out to her parents, um, and you know her her sexuality is also sinful and illicit. So it's not shocking then that this woman Norma, sex was always, sex and religion, sex and religion, right? Mm -hmm. I found Norma hadn't talked about this before, but she was a prostitute for a time. I mean, it was just telling her story. I kept feeling over and again like I was telling the story of abortion in America. Yeah, um, and with all of that, with all the complexity. Um, another person who um, I was really interested in the book um, was Mildred Jefferson, yeah. a right to life leader. And, um, and she became enormously prominent. Um, and you can see, uh, if you know a little bit about her, why she became so important. She was a doctor, she was a well-trained MD, and an African-American woman. And she was incredibly valuable once she, once she sort of got on the radar yeah. to the right to life movement. Yeah right, in the 70s and 1980s. Um, and I found learning about her was so fascinating. She was a, a character I didn't expect to find in your book and somebody I didn't know anything about. So I really wondered about you know, how you found her and how yeah. she um, wound up being one of the characters that you were so fascinated by. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned her. So you know, I mentioned, obviously, Norma was this incredible kind of prism you know, yeah, yeah. onto this whole thing. But, even looking at Norma and her three daughters, there were still sort of pockets of abortion in America that I, I wanted to touch upon and write about that didn't sort of immediately touch on Norma's life. Like I needed to surround Norma and her daughters with a few other characters. And I looked for those characters because I always wanted, you know, a, with my wife and I was right here, we have our two little kids and a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, right? So you want to find a narrative and then through that person's life, you can talk about this big important thing. So I have an abortion provider, Dr. Boyd, who's a remarkable character. Mm -hmm. Linda Coffey, one of Norma's two lawyers, who was totally forgotten by history, but really is the architect of Roe, an important woman who was swallowed up by her co-counsel, Sarah Weddington. And then there's Mildred Jefferson. I needed someone sort of to, I could use to tell the other side. And it was thrilling to find Mildred because she's so important and totally unknown. And I, I think you know she was really the architect of the pro-life movement. She was the first black woman to ever graduate from Harvard Medical School, a brilliant, remarkable woman. And all my characters are from Texas, sort of rural, poor Texas, mm -hmm. religious Texas. 
And, and she was a victim of, of terrible discrimination. Absolutely. And this is what was so thrilling. So the pro-life to this day sort of pretend that Dr. Mildred Jefferson is this sort of saint of the movement who leaves the heights of medicine. You know, she can be anything she wants, Harvard Med, and then sort of to go cater to the unborn. The truth is very different. The truth is that, and I found an FBI file that enabled me to write all of this, and her ex-husband and a few others. The truth is this. So she wanted to be a doctor. She wanted to be a surgeon, but her career was sabotaged. It was destroyed by misogyny and racism. It's so shocking. You're looking through this FBI file, and these super famous doctors, like there are many organizations and buildings named after these people, they're speaking so comfortably about how, well, you know, she, yeah, very smart woman, but obviously she wasn't going to sort of work with me. She's a black woman. And you're like, you know, this is absurd. It's 1972, 71, 73. And this is what they're saying. And she's so destroyed by this and so upset by this that she doesn't know what to do with her life. She can't get certified as a surgeon. And it's right about that time that the American Medical Association decides um, that they are going to tell all of their sort of members that, oh, by the way, if you're now in a state where abortion is legal, because there were, abortion was legalized in four states pre-Roe, um, one of, and the most liberal of all those states, I always still get a kick out of it 12 years later learning about it, was California, where Governor Ronald Reagan signed this sort of super liberal. Not by law, but by practice, by, not, not by statute, yeah. But what was amazing about that was it was even open to non-citizens. Uh, non like you could go to California and have an abortion through the 20th week of pregnancy mm -hmm. if you had the money to get there, um, which Norma didn't. But anyway, so Mildred doesn't know what she's going to do, and the AMA says this, and now she says, okay, I actually, now that I think about it, I'm not, I'm not a fan of, uh, of uh, legal abortion. And she's such a spellbinding speaker that she sort of very quickly becomes really the kind of most important speaker in the pro-life world. She's actually on a television show called The Advocates weeks before Roe v. Wade, um, a national television show, when Ronald Reagan hears her, is so shocked by what she says, he then writes her a private letter that I found saying, wow, I wish I'd heard you before I signed you know, that piece of <laughs> you know, In fact, he says, you've convinced me now that abortion is the taking of a human life. And they have this fascinating kind of back and forth. What was really amazing to me about Mildred Jefferson was here she is. She prefigures the movement actually, actually in a lot of ways, not only in terms of her realizing before anyone else did the sort of political goal that was in abortion, you know, let's politicize this for the benefit of the party, but also she's a true extremist. Extremist. Well, right, yeah. I, and that's that's the point that I wanted to follow up on yeah. about too. Yeah. And what and what she doesn't tell people. So she believes that abortion ought never to be legal, not in cases of rape incest. You know, back then that was shocking. There were 50 members of the board of the National Right to Life Committee. She was one of only three who felt that there ought not to be exceptions. Now, obviously, it's like ho hum in this country. <laughs> but what's really amazing, the very same woman who is saying that every single conception, you know, must lead to a birth. This same woman doesn't tell anyone, her ex-husband told me, Mildred was not alive when I started writing the book, that because she had suffered so much in life, um, because of the misogyny and racism she'd endured, she felt when she and her husband, who was white, and that was very important because um, 
interracial marriage at that time was illegal in basically half the country, and to enter into a marriage like that was going to be a very complicated thing. She tells her husband to be, I will marry you, but on one condition. She says, I have suffered so much in this world. I now know basically that to live is to suffer. There is so much injustice in this world, and the precondition for our getting married is that we will not have a child. The same woman who is saying that, you know, everyone else, if you're pregnant, must bring a child into this world. And it's this shocking sort of, you know, how does she then live with that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's remarkable. And that's something that I sort of plumb. Well, it's one of like 15 major ironies. Exactly. <laughs> I think, exactly. In this particular woman's story, exactly. right? Exactly. That she experiences sexism and then becomes the leader of this it's movement incredible. that, you know, that is the number one movement that challenges the women's movement. Exactly. Right? It's, it's amazing. It's shocking. Yeah. So, and I wonder, um, her story really leads into this because she's so extreme. And again, I mean, it sounds like Oklahoma today, yeah. right? But, um, but at the time, given that there was a huge trend toward liberalization in the late 60s into the early 70s, and many, many states were considering at least, you know, exceptions for rape and incest, exceptions for the, yeah. the, the life and the health and the well-being of women, you know, that was, the, that was so much the trend. Um, and she's pushing the other way at that time. So I wonder, like, from, from looking at her, but also the other figures in your book, it seems like you could really map out the way, the way that this issue became, you know, not just, um, not just controversial, but became, the way it became polar in this kind of hard, uh, in the kind of hard-edged way that we see today. And I think that's really important for us to understand, yeah. that it was, you know, messier, and more gray, and Absolutely. there was a lot more switching back and forth. The political parties Absolutely. were not so fixed. There were a lot of pro-choice Republicans. There were a lot of quote-unquote pro-life Democrats yep. back in the day, and uh, and it wasn't a, you know it wasn't that kind of polar, hard-edged um, issue in the late '60s into the early '70s. But now, of course, it is, and I think your characters really help us, yeah. you know, get there. I looked for people who would enable me to show that truth that you're expressing. It was fascinating to me. Like, now it is the most polarizing thing. Not only was it not then, and I can give you lots of examples, it wasn't at all a partisan issue. I mean, Reagan, Bush, you can go down the line, they were all pro-choice. On the other side, Dick Gephardt, Al Gore. Nelson Rockefeller in New York, who yeah. signed the, yep. the liberal abortion law yeah. in 1970. I mean, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a, um, uh, Jesse Jackson, all on the other side, Ted Kennedy, all for different reasons. You know, Jackson, because he felt that abortion was a particular sort of scourge on the black community. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Ted Kennedy, because of his, Catholic, his Catholicism. But over and over, I was like, oh, wow. Switched. Yeah, they all switched. They all got in line. Like once there wasn't any room for them in their party. And I think that that is actually very sad. When, they're, when you have to, you know, when something is so black and white, a lot is lost. Now, I make the argument in the book that abortion is actually fraught for good reason. It is a complicated issue. We like to think it is. It is. On the one hand, you have the sort of humanity of the fetus. On the other, you have the very real reasons a woman or a girl might wish to have an abortion, the very compelling reasons. Now, again, the reader knows sort of where I am, but I want to show how we got here. It's very complicated. So just to give, you know, a few examples through these characters. So it used to be that in this country, on the pro-choice side, President Clinton spoke for many when he said that abortion ought to be safe, legal, and rare. Mm -hmm. But now people will say, well, why should it be rare? In fact, abortion is only a social and moral good. It only empowers a woman. Why should it be rare? 
And that language sort of really began, the first person to really say that over and again to Congress and others was one of the central characters in my book, a guy named Dr. Curtis Boyd, a very important man. He was providing abortions in, America, in Texas pre-Roe, at great risk, obviously. He's still alive. And he, he was so important to the movement for so many reasons. But I think I argue that the most important reason was his complete impenitence about his work. He didn't say like, oh, I'm you know, performing a sort of a necessary evil, no. And it was important, I'll just, to give you again an example about how the, the movement has changed, it was fascinating. The National Abortion Federation, the sort of official federation of abortion providers in this country, when Dr. George Tiller sort of moved, the first doctor to sort of move forward past viability, past the point then at roughly 26 weeks when the fetus could survive outside the womb, he was the first one to sort of say, I'm gonna now be a, providing abortions in the third trimester because there are very compelling reasons why a woman needs to have an abortion even late in a pregnancy. Well, when he did that, and this is now a very embarrassing, uncomfortable thing for the National Abortion Federation, but I found in their own minutes that they basically sanctioned him and they were furious at him. And they said, how dare you do this? We're gonna refer you to this board and that board. I mean, well, now of course he's a, he's a martyr of the movement. Exactly. Because he was, he was killed by, by pro, so-called pro-life vigilantes. Exactly, and 10 years after they sanctioned him, they gave him their highest award. And when he's then assassinated, Dr. Um, Boyd, who was sort of my guy in my book, he says, well, I've always been kind of glad that I could refer people to my friend to do this because it's something I'm uncomfortable doing, but we need this service to be available. I'm now going to do that, and he's now the largest provider of third trimester abortions in America. Mm -hmm. But just to know, even though you might tell yourself, hey, I do believe that there ought to be um, third trimester abortions in America, because let's say a woman's life is at risk or there's sort of some horrible fetal abnormality. Okay, you might think that. I do believe that it ought to be in certain circumstances. And yet, I think it's good for people to really know what that entails. And in the book, you sort of come to see everything about abortion in America, including that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I tell a slightly different story where it really comes out of the women's movement, um, not just the most radical portion of the women's movement, but even a more a more liberal or moderate wing of the women's movement, like my mother, um, who was a, a, an attorney who used to wear skirt suits and pantyhose. She wasn't like a radical <laughs> human being um, in that way. Um, she wasn't one of the people who was, you know, protesting Miss America with the, you know, um, throwing uh, stuff in the freedom trash can and stuff like that. Yeah. But she was somebody who said that abortion should just be taken out of the legal code entirely. It certainly should not be anywhere in the criminal code. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and it actually shouldn't be regulated at all. It's none of the state's business, none of the government's business. And she actually wrote the first draft of, um, of the New York law, which was That's a full amazing. repeal. Um, it was later watered down slightly, but it was a full repeal of all abortion restrictions. And, um, and that, was, that became the National Organization for Women position. And it also became the position of more radical um, you know, freedom trash can type uh, radical feminists of the period, right? Lucinda Sizzler in New York and others who, um, who had that position. So, I mean, that was, that was a position of 1969, 70, 71, that was pretty broadly carried in the women's movement. Um, 
and probably not because everybody thought that a you know a very very late term abortion was a fantastic thing, yeah. but that it was that it, that it could be necessary, right? And that at any rate, it, you know, it was none of the government's business to. Um, to interfere with people's choices, whatever their choices might be. What's going right? to be very interesting now, um, and obviously, you know, it is, um, in my opinion anyway, a tragedy that the Supreme Court is, it looks like, you know, going to sort of overturn Roe. We could talk about that, obviously. But yeah. what will happen now is when the sort of question goes back to the states, I think we're going to see in a way we don't now, you know, once states begin deciding for themselves, we're going to see the entire sort of gamut of possibilities. Yes. You know, um, where there are certain states where there are literally no gestational limits, obviously, and then obviously we've got like Oklahoma and Texas where, you know, it'll be the most extreme on the other side. Um, yeah. So maybe we should start doing a little bit of that. People probably have questions, but maybe you can just start us off by saying, like, so what do you think, like, what are the top two or three things that you think um, your book contributes to the debate that we're having right now and the conversation we're having right now, which seems so urgent. And I think, you know, we're all trying to get our heads around it. Yeah, I do think ultimately maybe the single most important thing that I wanted to sort of show people is that no matter how strongly you feel about the issue, come to understand that it's complicated for good reason. Mm -hmm. I think that really is. And that there are good human beings on both sides of the issue. Ted Cruz is not a good human being. Okay, that's... Yeah. I'm glad, you, I'm glad yeah. you stipulated like, to that, yeah. He's a pretty comfortable not thing. All, not yeah. all people on either side exactly. are good, and right. yet there may be good people right. on all sides, yes. Right, in fact, one thing just to sort of say, it was remarkable when you see Norma's life sort of going back and forth. The leaders, unfortunately, on both sides of the movement, they really marginalized her and exploited her and did not do right by her. But it's fascinating when you sort and of- she was not doing so great, you know, on her, on her own. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. she gave as good as she got. This is a troubled, <laughs> complicated, difficult human being. Tried writing about her. I mean, like, <laughs> it was not easy. Um, but um, I would just um, say that, well, I don't remember what I was just saying, but that's fine, yeah. There are good fine. people on, on all sides. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you got exactly. it. Yeah, you, you got the idea. Um, yeah. Um, I, but that's really what I was trying to get at, to sort of humanize the issue. Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and I think, you know, I've, it's been a very surprising thing. Linda Greenhouse, you know, the sort of remarkable writer who's been writing about abortion, you know, in the New York Times for 50 years, literally. Yeah. Linda Greenhouse and the Southern Baptist Convention do not agree on much. But shockingly, they both endorsed my book. So that was like, it was a weird thing for me to see that if people feel that they're sort of fairly represented, um, that, you know, they'll read what you have to say. And I feel like there are lessons in there for all of us in this very, very polarized time. I just mentioned, you know, I mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention. It's crazy. The Southern Baptist Convention was pro-choice until 1980. Linda Coffey, Norma's lawyer, the woman who filed Roe, the woman who conceived initially of its legal arguments, this brilliant, very important woman who, you know, was totally forgotten, really, until my book sort of reminded people of what she'd done. She was a religious Baptist. And can you imagine that? She's a religious Baptist who's filing Roe. And her, her community was proud of her. 
They profiled her. Look at what she's doing. Mm-hmm. It's only in 1980 when there's no more room any, anymore after you know Jerry Falwell and Reagan and others make it impossible for an evangelical to be pro-choice. They then get in line. Not only that, the Southern Baptist Convention, um, they also come out against homosexuality, basically, obviously, against feminism. And Linda Coffey, who was um, a feminist, a gay woman, and a brilliant sort of, you know, uh, woman's rights activist, there's no more room for her in her church. And she, she has sort of a breakdown, and I, I write about that in the book. But mm-hmm. um, we've become so black and white, and I'd like people who read my book to sort of see, um, um, go back to, the, to when things were a little more gray. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, and I like, that, I like that you bring that out, particularly around, um, around issues of religion. I mean, you, what you said about religion and sexuality, I think that's true. But it's also true that um, the major religious denominations were not so dyed in the wool around this particular issue. And it wasn't, not only was it not polarizing, you know, in our major party politics, but it wasn't so polarizing in our spiritual lives and in our religious lives. Absolutely. And I document this a lot. I I wrote a lot about the clergy consultation service on abortion, which was a clergy-led abortion referral system that was... Um, that was run out of Greenwich Village in New York, yeah. um, and it became national. And thousands and thousands Dr. of people. Boyd was part of it. Yeah. yeah, thousands and thousands of people found safe, semi-legal abortions or illegal abortions um, through the clergy service. They were mostly Protestant ministers, and the, and then a bunch of Reform, conservative, and Reconstructionist rabbis who were helping. Then Absolutely. there were even a few Catholic priests who were involved. Yeah, right. One so of the, yeah. things have really gotten you know, polar in a way that would have been um, totally unfamiliar to folks in the late 60s and early 70s. Yeah, I was shocked to learn that the Catholic Church itself, for 1917 is when they basically say that all abortion from conception is totally verboten. But for 700 years before that, all but three of 700 years, they differentiated between abortions pre and post quickening. Only a woman who had an abortion post quickening would be excommunicated. And not only that, a lot of the sort of Christian um, understanding of abortion is based on a mistranslation of a single verse in the Bible, the Septuagint, the original Greek translation of the Bible. It was translated from Hebrew into Greek, yeah, yeah. That's right, I happened to speak Hebrew, so I was like, (laughs) that's not what it means. You know, and I realized that (laughs) other people realized that too. There was a mistranslation. One thing that's amazing, not a single verse in the Bible, New Testament or Old, addresses abortion. So people want to tell you this comes from on high, be like, you know what, go read the good book. Show me where it says that. And then they say, oh, okay, you know. And then they intuit it in this and that and the other. But they, they find it in the, the penumbras of the good book. Exactly, right? the penumbras and emanations, to quote the sort of, <laughs> yeah, go back to the Supreme Court. It's not mentioned there. There's only one verse where they sort of... Um, address even the inadvertent loss of fetal life. It says that if two men, this is in um, Exodus. Exodus, if two men are sort of jostling with each other and bang into a pregnant woman and cause her to miscarry, then what happens? And the Bible differentiates between the life of the mother and the life of the fetus. And the life of the mother counts more. Way more, yeah. <laughs> so it's very interesting. The mistranslation, though, says, oh, they're not differentiating between the, the, the woman and the fetus, but rather between a fetus formed or unformed. And that is not at all what it says. 
anyway, so. All right, so let's stop there and give people a chance to ask some questions. Yeah. yeah. Um, or make some very brief comments. Um, and I, uh, I think the protocol is that you can uh, ask your question. And do you want to acknowledge people? Uh, if they sure. raise a hand or something? Well, the nice thing is I know like 80% of the people in there. So <laughs> hi, everybody. Well, that'll make it yeah. easier. Yeah. Um, and then we, whichever of us speaks first, um, will repeat your question for the recording uh, and go from there. Good question. Good questions, yeah. So I can answer the second one sort of quickly. Norma said to me, and I spent hundreds of hours with her over the last four years of her life. I was actually with her when she passed away. Um, she said to me that every time I was with a man, I got pregnant. So there were three times. That's what she said. And there were literally, um, well, there were many, many, many hundreds of experiences she had with women. She worked for about five years in lesbian bars and was very proud of her, of, her, um, of her many relationships. She spoke about them openly and wrote about them openly. Um, so that, that answers that. Um, and um, your second question is a good one. I spoke to Mildred's closest childhood friend, who was her cousin, who grew up with her in this home in Texas. Um, and she, she said, as did um, Mildred's cousin, who is still alive, another one who is a reverend, that basically abortion was never discussed in the home because not only was it sort of verboten and stigmatized, but it wasn't an option because they couldn't afford it. It was just something that anyone in their community who wanted to end a pregnancy wouldn't even be able to do so. And her, her ex-husband told me that the, so they didn't know, in other words, they, they don't know what sort of prompted her to go in this direction, but her ex-husband said that she was horrified that the American Medical Association would sort of tell doctors to end a life, that that struck her as completely um, backward and oxymoronic. But, and I, discuss that a little bit in the book, but I really think she also was at such a loss for what to do with her life. Her life had been totally, her professional life had been totally sabotaged. And what's amazing is the very same parts of her personality that were such, uh, of her biography, excuse me, that were such hindrances in the medical world were enormous assets in the pro-life world. The whole pro-life world was white Catholic men. Here's a black Methodist woman. And they were like, look, we're not all white Catholic oh, men. God. Please go up on the stage, go up <laughs> on the stage. And then all of a sudden she's a star and she was desperate to be sort of, to live the life that she thought she sort of deserved um, and have the attention that she deserved. And she was immediately a star, becomes the head of the National Right to Life Committee and Reagan embraces her and she's off and running. And if you look at her first words about abortion, she actually says that she's less against abortion than sort of for life and for the role of the doctor. It's only as the years go by that she adopts this much more militant jargon.
women were striving for equality and trying to get, you know, uh, the right to vote, that the issue of abortion came up. And I think it was in, uh, a law passed first in Connecticut, I think, about abortion. Um, that it seemed to be that if women wanted more rights, the, uh, the right to choose seemed to become an issue when it, it never seemed to be one. Yeah. Um I think there's some connection between the women's rights movement and uh, the escalation of anti-abortion sentiment in America. But really, the first laws, like the first Connecticut law, um, is much earlier than that. And uh, thank you. Um, uh, and the New, the, the New York statute um, was from 1830. It was it was enacted in 1830. Um, so that's you know that's well before. When we usually say that the the official women's movement gets going in 1848 with the you know Seneca Falls, um, so it's actually before that. Um, I think it does have a lot to do with the rise of the medical profession, and it's you know sort of an infant medical profession in the early 19th century, and the medical profession will get stronger and stronger in the course of the 19th century and exert more control in this area. Um, you see it much more in the 1860s with the, the original formation of the American Medical Association and, um, and uh, a whole host of additional state campaigns so that by the end of the 19th century, every state in the US has some kind of an anti-abortion statute, right? Um, so I would pin it much more on that. Um, eventually, it, you know, it gets tied to the effort by um, this rising medical profession to get midwives out of the business, yeah. um, to get what they considered irregular practitioners out, that chiropractors and other kinds of people who didn't have, you know, allopathic medical type training, um, they, um, they didn't have that much to offer, um, but they did have, uh, they did have their supposed uh, moral authority and medical authority in this area of um, dealing with women's problems. So, I mean, that's what we see in New York um, already in the 1820s, that the, the, uh, the New York medical profession is influential in the state legislature, and they pass this first um, abortion control law, which is sort of a poison control law, and it's in the name of protecting women from these dangerous abortifacient drugs that they're taking. Um, it wasn't really about protecting women. Um, although maybe some people thought that, that that that's what it was about. Um, but I would say it's mostly about the rise of the medical profession. Do you, is that right. what you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So your book is an explosion in nuance about abortion. And yet we're dealing with polarized politics. And polarized politics demands dualism. So abortion, yes, no, no exceptions. No different than homosexuality, gun control, capital punishment. So the issue is, while you're talking and your approach is reasonable, it's different than what's happening, I think, in the politics, which yeah. is demanding dualism. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, we're living now at a time in a polarized country. and. Um, there's no room for nuance. And, and this issue, more than anything, you know, it's interesting to just sort of look back at, at how this happened, just to give a sort of very quick primer on what happened. So Linda Greenhouse, I mentioned, she and her um, writing partner, often Reba Siegel, they mentioned that there was some politicization of abortion pre-Roe. 
But obviously, Roe galvanizes those who are, are opposed to it. In a way, I'll add that I think the overturning of Roe, should that happen, which unfortunately looks like it will, is going to galvanize, I think, I hope, um, those who believe in it. Susan Sontag wrote a brilliant essay that I quote in my book in 1972, saying that only when an issue was truly politicized does that sort of rouse the sort of slumbering masses. Um, but just to sort of say about you know, what happens with a row, how we, how we kind of got here. So I mentioned Mildred Jefferson and Ronald Reagan, and he's like, oh, you know, you really sort of changed my thinking on this. Well, two years later, after, he, after Roe, after he hears Mildred Jefferson speak against it, 1975, he decides to run for president. And he comes out and he says, I am in favor of a human life amendment, basically, you know, amending the Constitution so that a fetus has personhood. A fetus is a person, therefore, all abortion is banned. This sort of goes over well in the world he's trying to appeal to. And then what happens is it's amazing. The next year, Mildred Jefferson is now the head of the National Right to Life Committee. And when everyone's running for president, she demands that every single candidate sort of take a position on the human life amendment. She's, she's, she's republicanizing the issue. It's fascinating. And in response to her doing that, the New York Times sort of recognizes that she and her organization are politicizing abortion in a way that it has never been politicized before. For the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, they both sort of introduce their thoughts about abortion into their respective platforms. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is that same year, there's a guy named Francis Schaeffer. He is a missionary uh, from America in Switzerland. And he has this long documentary film that comes out about abortion. And he says, you know what? The real issue here is the Supreme Court. It's all about the judiciary. Look what they did on Roe v. Wade. This is really bad. He influences Jerry Falwell, who says, yeah, you know what? That's a good point. And Falwell, obviously, is an entrepreneur. He founds the moral majority. And, and Schaefer tells Falwell, you need to sort of get evangelicals and Catholics together on this. You need to sort of come together. And by the time, and he says, okay. And by the time in 1980 that Ronald Reagan's running again, it's now a truly political issue. It's a wedge issue that's helping the Republicans win over not only Catholics, but the newly mobilized evangelical community. It's really right there. And it takes about another 10 years for the two parties to get in line. All politicians on the right will be this way, all, and et cetera. But that's what happens. Can I say something about this? Um, and you might not agree. Others, I don't know what other people are going to feel about this. But you know, having studied this for the last many years, um, I actually think that Roe versus Wade itself, if you actually read the opinion and you actually look at what they were deciding, that was a compromise. Roe versus Wade ex itself expressed some of this ambivalence that many Americans have um, and, and itself respected the spirit of compromise. And I wish we could remember that. We talk about Roe as though it's this like extremist, absolutist, you know, that um, that there's no there's no way to have a conversation, etc. What I, I mean, I personally I think what my mother thought, which is you know, abortion should just not be in the law books anywhere. But Justice Blackman, who wrote the Roe versus Wade opinion and who has been vilified for 50 years by the right wing, like he didn't think that, and the opinion that he crafted was actually very nuanced. I totally agree right? with you. That's the and whole in fact, point. in the preamble, he writes very beautifully about this. He says that the reason that what informs a person's opinion on abortion, he says, 
is exposure to the raw edges of human existence. Yes. That's his phrase. That basically, if you know somebody who had an abortion... He's thinking about people who are poor, like Norma, Absolutely. Right? He probably didn't fact, know the details of her story, in fact, but he kind of does know her story. Absolutely, and when he's nominated to the court, he says that, you want to know who I am? Look at my treatment of the, quote, little people. It's sort of a very moving thing. That's sort of what he says. So I totally agree with you. What's so fascinating, and I return to this over and again, you want to know what a person thinks? See if they've ever known anyone who had an experience. This is what he's saying. Personal experience, the exposure to the raw edges of human existence. Well, he doesn't mention in that preamble that his own daughter, Sally, a few years prior in college, had been unhappily pregnant. He, and that rerouted her life. He doesn't mention that when he was the general counsel at the Mayo Clinic, he had seen what happened to, to women um, who had gone to sort of illegal abortion providers, you know, uh, providers of illegal abortions, what happened to them. Absolutely, he was completely formed by his experiences. In fact, the most amazing thing I found was Justice Powell, his colleague on the court. Also a Republican. Also a Republican. He was, he later confided to a little group of his clerks. He would have been against legalizing abortion, except this is what happened just before he's on the court. He's working at a big Virginia law firm, and one of the messenger boys comes to him and says, you know, Mr. Powell, I need your help. He then tells him this horrible story that his girlfriend got pregnant, and he brought her to an abortion provider. She then died, and he was now wanted for manslaughter. And this double tragedy changed Powell's thinking forever. And that is something on a, I'm not Justice Powell, but on a different level, I'm trying to do in my book. You want to understand how we got here, read these stories. And I dare you as a, a, you know, an evangelical to not understand more the other side if you read this book, for example. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So I'll tell you an interesting thing. My book came out in September, and for the first few months, it was just totally ignored by the half of the country. That doesn't agree with Ralph. It was like not reviewed in a single paper. It was just ignored. The book just didn't come out. And then one person on the other side, Peggy Noonan, in the Wall Street Journal, wrote something. And I don't know Peggy Noonan, I had, I, but I'm thankful to her. Um, she wrote, she, 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 she wrote a very positive thing about the book and said that people need to read this book. And like magically, all of a sudden, they did. I have friends um, who are um, um, in the Orthodox Jewish community um, and they're, they're very um, uh, religious and they're also um, politically conservative. And they didn't know <laughs> that their buddy who'd been working on this book, that his book had actually come out until Peggy Noonan mentioned it. I'm like, <laughs> dude, my book came out six months ago. You know, but it was just, it was a shocking reminder to me 
of how divided our country is, right? And so once she wrote that, all of a sudden I started getting invited onto like podcasts. And to be perfectly honest, I get more excited when I'm of, of, of like very religious organizations and very, you know, big evangelical groups and stuff. I get more excited when I'm speaking to them because I tell myself there are people I'm now speaking to who have literally never heard someone who's pro-choice talk about this issue. And, you know, for the first 20 minutes, I'm sort of sort of careful. By the end, I'm talking about, and another thing, did you know it's all based on a mistranslation in the Septuagint? You know, and then you can hear them hanging up the phone. But kidding aside, they're listening, you know, and that is a good feeling for me, and I think that that's important. And they were like, look, we're not all white Catholic men. Go up on the stage, go up on the stage. And then all of a sudden, she's a star, and she was desperate to be sort of, to live the life that she thought she sort of deserved um, and have the attention that yeah. she yeah. continually, but pro-life. Yeah. You know, because I, there's such power in words and the frames you put around things affect how people see the picture. Yeah. And then, but then here you are. You're endorsed by the Baptist groups and you're talking, you're building bridges. So I feel very struck and sort of like I learned something. You know, I do appreciate how that makes them feel respected. I'd love love to hear your thoughts on this too. Um, And I'll answer you. You know, I actually thought that, um, well, I think I upset more people on the pro choice side doing that than I did on the pro life side. And they obviously feel just as strongly on the pro life side about the pro choice. The best book I ever read about abortion was written by a woman named Kristen Luca. Um, sociologist. She's amazing. She wrote a very famous book, 1985, about abortion. And she was the one who really, and she had guts, you know. Um, she she was the one who also sort of pointed for the law. It was very sad to me, again, as a person who knows where he feels on this issue, but to read how Norma was treated by the leaders of the pro-choice movement. And she writes, Kristen Luca writes, that both sides consider the term, the, uh, the term on the other side sort of a mockery of who they really are. And she chose that, and that inspired me. I was like, you know what, I'm gonna do it too. And there were other choices I made along language. Like, by the same token, I didn't just fall in line. I'm not gonna call a zygote a, a human being. You know, um, I'm not gonna do that. And I lay out sort of for my reader in my author's note, how I made my decisions. But I actually do think that there is a lot that we can each do to sort of help step across the line and let people be called what they wish to be called. Like that's something I think that is a good starting point. What do you, what do you think about this? Um, I, think it's a, I think it's pretty much the way to go. I, I thought about this when I was reading Daniel K. Williams's book. Yeah. Um, I think he's probably, um, an anti- he's a scholar, probably an anti-abortion scholar, yeah. but he wrote like the best book about the origins of the pro-life movement from before Roe versus Wade. And, that, and that's fantastic. what he says. Yeah, you yeah. know, that, there's, that there's, there's, a, there's an appropriateness to calling people what they chose to be called. For me, I, um, 
I chronicled only a little bit of the emergence of that movement in New York, and in New York it happened before Roe because New York had such a dramatic liberalization of its law in 1970. So you see right after that, the movement takes off, and I, I chronicle that some. Um, but it came up for me a lot about using the word woman. You know, and, and there are a lot of conversations now about how do we express the fact that there are, you know, trans and non-binary and queer people who don't see themselves as women and who still have the capacity There's to get pregnant. There's an article about that on the front page of today's Times. Yes, there is. Um, and, uh, and for me, that was very problematic because the people I'm writing about in the 70s understood themselves as women and understood themselves as part of a women's movement. Um, and yet, if we're talking about today, it's just, it's, to me, that's, it's just not accurate, right, to say that this is only a women's problem. That's just like numerically, statistically not true. Um, so how do we balance that? And how do we also balance the fact that this is an issue that's, that still is so tied to the politics of sex and, of, and of womanhood and femininity, right? Um, and it may also be tied to transphobia. Um, but I think it would also, I think it would be missing something if we didn't say that it was tied to sexism, right? So for me, that, that was one of the real areas of, of difficulty and challenge. Um, and I really felt like it was important to, to, to root it in that past when there was a rising women's movement that was coming into its own and was critiquing the law for the first time ever. And people were, you know, understanding some of the limitations of, the way you know the way we understood what a crime was, and we made the way that abortion had become a crime, right? That though in, in feminist terms, like that that um, that movement had to have its own dignity as a women's movement, and at the same time we had to do justice to the contemporary. I had to do justice to the contemporary conversation as much as possible. Did you did you wrestle with that at all in your writing? Um, uh, yes, I mean I wrestled with so much. It was complicated. I had to. In a way, it was easier for me because I'm not um, a professor and I am a journalist and I write about in the back of the book, I'm writing this as a journalist, not as an activist. And it's, I think in a way I was able to sort of get off the hook a little bit um, and, um, and just sort of make my decisions, stick to them and, and tell my stories. Um, but yeah, I did, I did wrestle with that. I wrestled with a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think those langu those language issues are really I just want to mention difficult. one thing. You mentioned this guy Daniel K. Williams. If people want to read a very good book um, about the sort of pro-life movement, it's great. It's called Defenders of the Unborn. Um, in fact, a funny thing about him, surely he's the guy. Uh, two days ago, I was interviewed for 2020. And I was like, shit, I forgot all this stuff. I need to call someone. And I called Dan Williams. And he sort of made me look smart, yeah, on television. Yeah, two days ago. So I'm returning the favor by telling you to buy his book. That's great. And Crystal Luker's book is Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a very good book, another good book. It's called The Scarlet Letter A. Mm -hmm. um, I forget the professor who wrote it. Um, it's a great book. And she, she, leans, she lays out for the reader in the back of the book all of the different arguments that can be made to either mandate that a pregnancy must continue on or that you feel that it is like philosophically okay 
for it to be terminated. And I mentioned that, that actually, look, when they were wrestling what to do with Roe v. Wade, where do we draw this line? What's fascinating is Blackman, who writes the opinion, he's vilified, as you say, for 50 years. He actually, if you look at his first draft, and this gets back to the fact that this first draft we all saw might change. It really might. He, he says, at the, after you read his first draft, that abortion ought to only be legal through the end of the first trimester. Mm -hmm. Justice Powell, the one I mentioned before, he says no. There actually, he says, was just a ruling by a Connecticut judge named John Newman, who's still alive, who attached, that attached constitutional significance to viability. What's amazing to me was that, um, well, I'll just sort of say, and then I'll say what I thought was, well, let me just say this so I don't forget. <laughs> what was amazing is that Alito doesn't even mention this John Newman opinion. That's ridiculous. Like, he knows exactly why Roe landed on viability, and he doesn't do it. And that shows this is really the writing of an activist more than the writing of a Supreme Right, that Court was a justice. compromise, too. Right, it was the big federal decision before Roe versus Wade. Absolutely. And it, it was, there were two of them, right? Connecticut first just threw um, abortion out of the law books, and then the legislature said, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're going to do something different. And then they had a second opinion from the federal court saying, creating the viability line, right? Exactly. Yeah. So there's, I mean, if anybody, like, if, if the Supreme Court justice should, you know, say this to you, um, you should definitely argue with them that, you know, <laughs> that this idea of viability has no founding or it's no nonsense. history in our constitutional law. Like, no, 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 no. And I'll just say something else. I majored in music theory in college. <laughs> like, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And if I can learn it, we all can. Really, it's actually fascinating. You read the Roe opinion. It's not like legal jargon. It's really interesting, and it's moving, and he sort of tells the history, how we got here. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, those who are opposed to it will argue that it's very short on constitutional analysis, which is true, which is why it's so easy to read. Um, but um, it, no, it, it, is, it is important to sort of educate yourself about what's going on, and it was really a good experience for me to understand and be able to speak about it. Yeah, and on the religion point, um, I'll also say, so if you look at Roe versus Wade, the opinion itself, um, the other thing that Justice Blackman does is that he acknowledges our religious diversity. Yeah. You know, he acknowledges not just that we disagree with each other because we have different moral views or different views on feminism, but that you know, people, people who are atheists and people who are rooted in traditional religious beliefs have really different views on this, including you know, in the Jewish case, the, you know, the view that in Jewish law, like, abortion sometimes is necessary. Yeah. You know, sometimes you, you, you must abort if the woman's life is in danger, yeah. right? So, um, so Blackman was able to do that, and I think, I think that's a pretty good, for a pluralistic society, that's a pretty good uh, approach in terms of making constitutional law. So what the problem now is... From the Supreme Court perspective, the problem is that it's not that they're religious. You know, the problem is that they're so narrowly religious, you know, and they don't acknowledge that. Right? That's that's what really seems to be messing, you know, messing things up. That they build what what they call a kind of neutral, you know, originalist um, yeah. doctrine 
out of something that you know is very much tied to a very very particular um, religious basis, and it's not like it's not like prior to this constitutional law has ignored the fact that Americans are religious. Like it was, I think what Blackman was trying to do was respect our religious roots, you know, and respect people's diverse faiths. You, and I think that's that's an appropriate role, right, for the federal courts, for the federal government to play. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, you know, you speak about religion, we're talking about exposure. I don't think it's a coincidence. And, you know, you'd get in trouble if you write about this too much, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the five justices who are now poised, according to that leaked draft opinion, to overturn Roe, were all raised Catholic. I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, and, you know, I'm a traditional Jew, and I don't like it when people will say, hey, you're Jewish, therefore this, that. Like, I get why that's a complicated point to make, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, the way we're raised, the people we know, the experiences we have, the people we meet, these things inform our opinions. In fact, I just wrote an article that's coming out, I think in time, um, in like a week. Um, and I point out that, you know, like you're saying, these justices want us to think that they're so, they're, they're only informed by pure judicial theory. It's bullshit. They are also informed by their upbringings and by everything else. And there's a great book that is written by Cardozo, um, who he writes this like a hundred years ago, and he talked, you know, the famous um, uh, jurist and Supreme Court justice and all that. And he says in there that in fact, you know, like Supreme Court justices are people too, and these are the things that that make us that help us sort of write our opinions. Here's how it happens. Yes, we have our Yes, we have our philosophies, but then we also have these other things that are sometimes subconscious, he says, that inform us, and I point out a lot of that in this article. So, you know, um, Supreme Court justices are people too, mm -hmm. and it's nonsense when they, you know, they talk about their originalist stuff. There are many examples. Basically, the reason my book sort of um, is pretty good on the legal stuff is because I have a lot of smart lawyer friends, and I call them all the time, and they help me, and they point it out to me, all this stuff. For example, you know, they want to say, oh, you can't infer a right to privacy from the Constitution. But then there are many cases where they do. There was a famous case from 1925 um, where they, a conservative court, inferred a right to privacy from the Constitution. It had to do with the education, like uh, saying that your child um, can, can go have a private education, doesn't have to go to public school. Um, so these people pick and choose, too. Mm -hmm. And um, it's important to call the justices out on that. The problem is right now we are hostage to an activist extremist court. You know, the... the oh, yeah, we should probably talk about what's going to happen next. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a giant and a hero, um, you know, but she made one really bad decision. She stayed on the court too long, and there are reasons why, and we could talk about, you know, uh, maybe it was just not the very human thing of not wanting to give up a job you love. And obviously there was the Merrick Garland catastrophe. She, she wanted to be replaced by a woman president, um, is my take on it. But, she wanted her seat to be, you know. But she, she was a brilliant woman, and she knew that there was a chance um, that that might not happen. And look at what's happened. 50 years of her work are mm -hmm. sort of in jeopardy. It's a tragedy. Um, and Justice Roberts, who's not exactly like a liberal, you know, but now he's the chief justice, but they don't need him. 
and they don't need him. They've got their five votes. And so, yeah, right now, as we sit here speaking, he's desperately trying to flip Justice Barrett or Justice Kavanaugh, but will he be successful? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um, yeah, well, maybe we could do, if we, we want to think a little bit about where we're at, where we're at now yeah. and where we're going, uh, maybe we can do that in two parts, yeah, the grim and the not finish. so grim. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, so the grand people probably know about, uh, yeah. do we have to go? I don't know, it's 7.23, so we probably maybe take like two more questions, I'm assuming, and then, um, and then call it a day. All right, well, I'm going to agree with you about probably, um, you know, that Justice Alito opinion that was leaked. It was just a draft, right? So there could be some big change. Yeah. Um, I don't think there will be. Yeah. Um, and... Some people have said that maybe that's because the draft itself has inflamed debate. I just don't, I don't think that there would have been a lot of change in, in any event for the reasons that you just said. So probably Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned in a few weeks. And you want to ask a question about that? Yeah, go ahead. No, I just want to go really John Eric here. You can kick us off. Well, that's... Yeah, so that's a damn good question. Yeah, and I'll, I'll let you speak to it, but I'll Kaput. say it's crazy. It's not true when Alito writes that, oh, this has no bearing on that. Nonsense. Nonsense. Of course it does. Um, you know, legally, it does. They hinge on the very same arguments. So I do think, though, that he has no interest personally in that. You know, he, um, but, but of course, this, that is now vulnerable. Um, and I, and I can, you know, I'm sure you can speak to this, but I'll just add one thing that's really fascinating. It was fascinating to me. Um, there, 50 years ago, there was a lot of overlap in the fights for women's rights and the fights for gay rights. Oh, yes, this is a great part of your book. Oh, the fight thanks. against sodomy going way back. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know any of this. Against sodomy laws. And it's kind of fascinating that the three people who came together to bring Roe into existence were all gay. Like, that had never been pointed out before. Norma McCorvey, um, Linda Coffey, and the person who connected Linda and Norma. An amazing man who sadly was murdered in 1973 named Henry McCluskey. The world needs to know about this man. He was brave. He was fighting the, the sodomy laws in Texas. And he wasn't the greatest lawyer in the world, so Linda was whispering into his ear and helping him write like what he needed to write about it. But I was just thinking that just as there were fights sort of, they, those two sort of fights were being waged together, so too now. You know, you knock down one, you can knock down the other. I think mm -hmm. it's true and it's sad and it's scary. Um, yeah, I would add, I think it's definitely, um, Vulnerable. It might take a little while, yeah. um, and it might make Justice Kavanaugh more yeah. hesitant. Um, uh, but um, you know, those of us who are queer, I would say, get your papers in order. You know, as as we did before marriage was legal, right? Um, all those healthcare directives and all that other stuff, right? Um, I think that's probably probably a good idea. Um, but I mean, I think in a bigger sense, though, what I'd like to say as we're starting to starting to end is that of course we have right now we have to focus on the supreme court right we can't help it because the supreme court is is incredibly powerful yeah. and it is extreme in exactly the way that we think it's extreme and it is coming for us um but i think in terms of what we need to do 
um, in the period coming, I think we need to take our minds away from the Supreme Court. And I think it's, it could be very dangerous if we get like overabsorbed with um, you know, a lot of persnickety questions about this doctrine or that doctrine, and you know, maybe Roe really was badly decided, or maybe gay rights really do rest on a weak foundation, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm a historian of constitutional law, among other things. Like, there are no weak foundations or strong foundations. They're just our foundations, right? Justices just decide. Like you were saying about Cardoza, they decide at various times for various reasons. They do the shit they do, mostly because they're pressured into it by mass social movements, you know, rising from the ground up. When they do something like legalizing same-sex marriage um, or overturning sodomy laws or um, restricting the ability of states to regulate abortion, they're responding to enormous power that's being amassed from the ground up, right? And, and we, we've all experienced yeah. this, right, in the last 50 years. We've all observed it and participated. And I think that's where our attention needs to be because that's really where the action is and where it's going to be. Like not with the justices, but with the ordinary people that you write about, with the activists I write about, right? And with us, not with them. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way to sort of finish up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much.